In this episode, you'll hear from Tatiana Kure on how to become great at hiring. Tatiana is an expert and coach who helps managers identify, attract, recruit, and onboard top talent. She has a deep knowledge on this, has worked across a range of different industries and seniority levels. She also recently published a book called A Practical Guide for Hiring Managers on Attracting and Interviewing Top Talent. I read the book. I loved it, specifically the templates and guides that she's providing in her book. And I highly, highly recommend it if you want to learn more about hiring and interviewing practices. But let me not get ahead of myself because first, check out this conversation with Tatiana as she's sharing tactful strategies, specific tips and methods, as well as her personal experience with hiring and interviewing. And I personally love the conversation, learned a bunch, and I know you will too. So here we go. This is the conversation I had with Tatiana Kier. Here's the question. How do you successfully transition into your first official leadership role, build the confidence and competence to lead your team effectively and establish yourself as a respected and trusted leader across the organization? That's the question and this show provides the answers. Welcome to the Manager Track Podcast. I'm your host, Ramona Shaw, and I'm on a mission to create workplaces where work is not seen as a source of stress, but as a source of contribution, connection, and fulfillment. And this transition starts with developing a new generation of leaders. I'm a leadership coach, a mom of three, a coffee lover, and a travel enthusiast. Stick around because in this show, you'll learn how to think, communicate, and act to become a confident, high-performing leader people love to work with. Let's go. Tatiana, so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tatiana, you recently wrote a book called Hire to Win, Manager's Practical Guide to Attracting and Interviewing Top Talent. Can you tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book and a little bit about the last few years in your career and what you've been doing that led up to this big project? Yeah, sure. So I will try to start with my career first, just because it will almost perhaps give me the credibility. It's like, who who is this chickadee writing this book, right? So I actually started out as a recruiter. Uh, I fell into it and I joined a small firm that specifically focused on compliance and legal searches for financial services. So it was, you know, never mind. I didn't know what recruiting was all about. I also had no idea what this world of compliance and legal was all about, but I actually did quite well. And I continued to grow my career into also then placing accounting professionals across different industries. And then I joined Bank Liumi uh, as the first time recruiter within the organization. And it was at a time during transformational change and hyper growth. So we had a, a ton of openings at the time when I joined, but I also had to create a kind of standardized practice uh, of talent acquisition and it's evolved. I've been with the company for six years and I almost feel like I've been with six different companies because it's evolved so yeah. many times. But I wrote this book for two reasons. One, I actually wrote it during the time of the pandemic and I was like, okay, I'm not commuting to work. So what am I going to do during this time of two hours per day? And I, it's always been, you know, a dream of mine to publish a book and I could have written about anything, but I kind of looked at, you know, where do 
my skills kind of lend themselves to be almost like a, some sort of subject matter expert. And I noticed that a lot of my friends who were starting their businesses and hiring for their first time, they didn't have a recruiter in their back pocket mm -hmm. and they couldn't spend, you know, 30% fee on a headhunter, right? So they had to hire on the side of their desk, but no one trained them how to do it. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to provide something for them. And, you know, while I try to help everyone, but my time is still limited. I can't, you know, help as much as I can with everyone who I want to. So I wrote this book uh, to help managers who may just not have that support. Uh, what's interesting, though, is since I published the book, the most amount of reach outs that I've had is actually been from recruiters. They're like, I've never got trained. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't like, I just fell into it just like you did. And now I'm using your book as my like, you know, training manual. So it was actually really awesome to me because I'm like, wait a second, I can actually impact more hiring managers by training recruiters. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was the goal there. Very cool. Well, I can understand why recruiters will read the book and use it as a training manual because you use a lot of scripts and tools and, and templates in the book. And I thought that was super, super helpful. But before we dive into some of these and best practices and no-goes and, and all of that, can you tell us a little bit more about the changes in the recruiting or hiring landscape that you've observed over the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Because what I definitely noticed from uh, the leadership coaching side is that a lot of people are challenged with situations and new hiring demands and practices that are different from what they're used to pre-pandemic. What are some of the shifts that you have noticed that you think impact managers the most? Right. So pre-pandemic, right, it was almost unheard of to hire someone who the hiring team didn't meet in person. And most hiring teams relied heavily on the gut feelings or chemistry that they would have with the candidate. Uh, and that was the biggest factor, right? So they looked at, you know, did that person look like me? Did they act like me? And these answers would then, you know, ultimately predict for the hiring teams, how likely is that individual to succeed in the company? Now we all know that's not the case. And so we've, you know, the, the hiring world, HR and, you know, leadership professionals and coaches have spent a lot of time pre-pandemic of really educating managers to, you know, kind of address those biases that they may have mm -hmm. and, you know, how to hire differently and what to look for and not to fall in love with, the, you know, with the person who you just have happen to have a lot of common interests with, right? Mm -hmm. But during the pandemic, the hiring came to a complete stop, right? So everything that we've made some progress in, in making some changes, it took a whole huge leap backwards. So then now all of a sudden, those managers start to hire again, and they're hiring in the same way. The only difference is that they are just doing it virtually, right? So they still are looking for resumes that resemble their own resume. They mm -hmm. look at, you know, how do they present themselves in the same way that they would represent themselves and so forth, right? And at the same time, so the managers didn't change, but the candidates did, right? Yes, so they, <laughs> so they started to, you know, they're not chasing just a bigger and bigger paycheck. They're looking for life-work balance. They're looking for the work that they want to do. They're looking for the environment that they want to succeed in. And at the same time, there's new laws and regulations that are coming out. Like in New York, a new bill just was passed where now, you know, the compensation and the budget for the role needs to be posted on the job, 
right? Yeah. So the hiring has become so complex and so sophisticated that the hiring managers really need to practice not just the science, but the art of hiring. And yeah. that's and that's so challenging when you just simply haven't been hiring for the last 12, 18 months. So now it's yeah. it's really complex. You know, when you, when I was reading your book, I thought about this, the real estate market and how that almost serves a bit as an analogy. There's a buyer market and then there's a seller market. And it feels very much that we've completely shifted into a buyer's market, right? Where now the responsibilities are so much more with the manager. They really have to up-level the game and they have to fine-tune their approach and represent themselves really well because the candidates have so many options. And not only because the market is on fire, but also because now talent can be sourced for remote setups from anywhere. Right. Right. And, and like the gig economy is booming as well. So yeah, now there's like, never mind options. There's also like complete different avenues that potentially weren't really available to candidates in the past to, to the level that they are now. Yeah. A hundred percent. I hear a ton of stories of, you know, people uh, jumping ship the the day that the contract is due or they sign the contract, but then they don't show up or they show up and they get a better offer a week into their job and then they quit. And so the, I think the emotional roller coaster too, for someone who's hiring and who's, who needs to build a team and is eager to finally delegate work and to let go of th- certain things. And then, you know, getting someone on board, being excited and then them changing their minds so far into the process of not even post-contract signature, right? Uh, right. It's a bit crazy. And so I, I love co- um, that you're coming on to this podcast. I think this is something that's top of mind for so many people in the audience here and uh, those listening. The other thing that I thought you did a really good job alluding to were the mistakes that new managers make or hiring managers make and mistakes that you made as a recruiter. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience and sort of the mishaps and the pitfalls that you stumped into that we may be able to learn from? Yeah. So in my book, I talked about the mistakes that I have made as a hiring manager, right? And the reason why I did that, that I included those mistakes is to really show that even the best of recruiters who hire for a living makes those mistakes. So I'm a human too, right? Mm-hmm. But I think too, when I was in the eye of the storm, even though I knew better, it was hard for me to pull myself out and offer myself advice, which should have been second nature to me, because again, I hire for a living. Mm-hmm. So the mistakes that I talked about, right? Like number one, I took things personally. Mm-hmm. I specifically talked about you know, when I was looking for a new headcount and I was killing it at work, like I truly exceeded every goal and I took it so personally that I wasn't able to get a new headcount approved to continue to, to exceed those goals and just simply not work 18 hour days. Right. Mm -hmm. So I talked about this because I feel that almost any manager would have at some point gone through the process of trying to get a headcount approved and getting that request denied. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so easy for us to, to take it personally rather than saying, okay, like how, what, what could I have learned from this? How could I have positioned this better? Mm -hmm. So then the second mistakes, uh, the second mistake I talk about was how I made decisions while emotions were high. 
Now, the way I talked about that mistake was writing my resignation letter after I didn't get this approved, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and I really didn't feel valued, right? But it's relevant to everything. One of the most valuable advice I received early on in my career was to not hit send on that emotional email, right? Yes. So let it sit overnight. And if you still feel the same way in the morning, reread it and send it. Most of the time you won't end up sending it, right? Yeah. So this applies to everything. I've had managers try to extend an offer to a candidate on a spot while they're mm-hmm. right in front of them. The emotions are high. They're way too high around, you know, just post the, the interview. But would that be the same emotion, the same decision that you would want to make the next day? Yes. And from both parties, right? Yes. You know, they can, you know, maybe kind of feel pressure to say yes at the at the moment. And then, like you said, like not show up on the next, you know, on their first day, right? So let the emotions like, you know, subside and then make the decision that way. There's a rule of thumb that I remind myself often, which is when emotions are high, intelligence is low. And I always think like, oh, I feel emotional. My intelligence is not at its best. Do not make decisions. <laughs> Do not hit that same button, just like you said. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that kind of reminder. So I'll talk, talk about my third mistake too. So, uh, and there's five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but so the third mistake uh, I talk about was that I love to say, I told you so, right? So for mm-hmm. me, I was talking about how I knew the market for which I was hiring. And so, so well and relished in the idea of showing off how right I am. Again, this shows up with hiring managers who believe that they can do everything themselves, While we might think that doing everything ourselves uh, is showing off and how right we are and shows how intelligent we are and makes a case to get promoted or take bigger roles, it actually is the complete opposite of what true leadership is all about, right? Leaders realize that they don't know everything. They realize they need help and opinions of others to make the best decision. So it's not about saying, I told you so. Mm -hmm. So then the fourth mistake I talked about was assuming that everyone was on the same page. So this truly happens all the time in hiring. The perfect example that I can think of is, you know, when I see on job descriptions that they're looking for an expert level Excel. So uh, Excel skills, right? So early on in my career, the way I would ask candidates about their Excel skills, I would ask, okay, so on a scale of one to 10, where do you believe your Excel skills are? Uh, Most common answer I would get was seven. Mm -hmm. And I took it as is, right? So I didn't question it. I figured we were all on the same page and I would tell the hiring manager that, you know, the candidate has better than average Excel skills. So then later on in my career, I would then, you know, kind of assign the qualities, you know, one is data entry, 10 is building macros. So then the most common answer I would get is six. Uh, Again, I didn't question it. I would say to the hiring manager, okay, they're, you know, on a scale one to 10, 10 being macros are out of six. So then uh, now uh, I actually now ask the hiring manager first before I ask the candidate. So, okay, on a scale of one to 10, one being data entry, 10 being building macros, you know, five being able to do pivot tables and VLOOKUPs and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we agree on that, right? So, okay, so that's our scale. So then I go to, to candidates and they say, okay, five. Okay, so great. So you, you do pivot tables and VLOOKUPs, right? Um, So this is applicable to virtually everything. It could be communication Mm -hmm. skills, presentation skills. It could be everything because we assume how we think about communication skills is the same how you think about communication skills. It's the same how someone else, 
right? Yes. So we assume that everyone is on the same page and it's not, it's not the case. Yeah. So um, just to step on that or to, uh, to pause on that for a second, do you recommend asking scaling questions like this and giving that quali- qualifier with the number so that they can rank themselves and you are able to compare candidates and their answers uh, more easily? Right. So, I mean, scaling questions is better than, than just saying like, what's your Excel skills, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to be careful not to say like, okay, so it's important in this job to have pivot tables, to be able to do pivot tables. Do you do that? Right? You, just, <laughs> you just gave away the answer. Like, yeah, yes, I'll I do. figure it out, <laughs> right? So yes, it's a, it like, but, but still leave it open-ended, still allow the candidate to, to actually explain their experience if mm-hmm. the only way that you're going to be assessing that skill is through that question and not through some sort of like case study or yeah. work example or so, or so mm. on. It's still, yep. th- there's a fine line there. <laughs> yeah, no leading questions. Uh, here's the answer that you should give and then you should go home and you should Google it. <laughs> Google it, right? <laughs> For sure. For sure. And so, so the final mistake I talk about um, is shifting accountability. Right. So when hiring and really anything, right, it's human nature to shift accountability away from ourselves. It's also easy to get defensive and talk about, well, this is my side of the story and so forth. But what I have learned that is that it takes so much more effort to point fingers or shift blame versus just saying, okay, we made a mistake here. Let's see what we can learn from it and move on. Yeah. And that's it. And we move on. And like, there's no shifting of accountability needed. Just say like, what are the lessons learned here? Right? Yes. Yeah. And I find this interesting. And I'm so so glad that you bring this up, because I think especially when you're in a hiring role, and then there is there are different stakeholders involved in the interview process, and you're working with potentially with a recruiter, and then something doesn't go according to plan in that moment when we get defensive, we actually make it way harder down the road to work with these people effectively because they now start filtering or they start being hesitant or they're holding, they're withholding information or not. The information doesn't flow as well as it should. And so the moment we get defensive, we start assigning blame to whomever that might be in the process. We're mm-hmm. just putting more barriers in front of us for our future mm-hmm. interactions. Right. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing those. So from these mistakes, right? So those are some of the things that we want to avoid and not do. What do you consider some of the best practices? And I know you go into a bunch of them in your book, and I will link to this in the show note. But for the, the people listening who are new to management and or new to hiring, you say, listen, this is in your, your, in your first 10 hires. Here's what you for sure want to pay attention to. What is your answer to that question? Yeah, so I, you know, I would say to have a plan first, like the the best kind of analogy that I can think of is if you ever try to put together a piece of furniture from Ikea, like there's the instructions right there on top, but I don't know anyone who actually looks at those. They're like, oh, I'll figure this out. Let me just start putting this together, right? And they come all the way till the end. They're like, oh, this doesn't fit. I have this extra leg for this table. Where does it go, right? And then they have to like restart from the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why I tell that is, um, you know, when I think about hiring, most times, like when I ask hiring managers, okay, so what are you looking for in your next hire? There's like this long list of like, well, they need to be organized. They need to have, be a good communicator. They need to be a good team player. They need to, they have this whole list. I'm like, okay, 
well, that's nice. But like, what is the actual goal here? Like, what challenge are you facing? What kind of skill gap do you have in your team? What are you, what systems are they going to be using? Who are your competitors? Where are you looking for talent? What kind of interview are you going to have? What kind of training are you going to have? And then, and then that's when that long list of must haves all of a sudden like goes away. Like no longer yeah. do you need an MBA. Actually, you just need to have like a seven in Excel skills, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I would say the number one thing is having a true, direction for yourself of uh, of wh- how you're going to be interviewing who you're going to be hiring what is the ideal candidate and and how are the interviewers going to be assessing them for you how are mm-hmm. they going to be helping you one of the things that you put in your book is an actual like an overviewers I guess it's a screenshot of a spreadsheet where you say, okay, here are the five people are going to interview and here are the exact skills that each of them is going to assess and then here are the questions they need to ask because mm-hmm. right, I've been on both sides of the table and I definitely have seen the good and the bad mm-hmm. um, of going, walking into an interview and then not doing five rounds and five times being asked exactly the same question. Right. And I think maybe, you know, 10 years ago, you could afford doing that. But today, this is all building into your reputation and you're thinking as a candidate, oh my gosh, they don't have their stuff together. <laughs> this is not where I want to. That's not the team that I want to join or too much time lapses in between because there isn't a plan in place. And so, you know, the teams or the hiring manager is scrambling to get the people in the room or to make it happen. And then not sure, is this the right timeline or doing it now or not? And, oh my gosh, we haven't figured this part out. And then that delay in the process again, leaves behind a bad taste in the people's candidates, candidate side. Right. And not only that, right. But if you're asking the same question, like, tell me about yourself, walk me through your resume. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Let me tell you how awesome we are. Like you're just scratching the surface. You're not actually getting to the depth of whether the candidate is the right fit. You're not addressing mutual fit, both short-term and long-term, which then brings me to the point of like, well, another best practices is to remember that this is a, a two-way street in hiring, mm-hmm. right? And too often our interviews scheduled for 30 minutes and 28 of those minutes are the interviewer is asking questions from the candidate and the candidate has no, no opportunity to make sure that there's a, a mutual fit for yes. themselves, right? Yeah. So we got to make sure that there's this mutual fit. And one, um, one manager who I worked with did something phenomenal. I've never heard this happen before. And now I recommend it to everyone, but he was hiring someone to report into him. And he said, look, like, you know, I have a management style. That's not the right fit for everyone. Here's a list of people who used to report to me. I, they no longer report to me. So they have no obligation to speak very highly of me. I want you to do a reference check on me. I want you to ask them what it's like to work for me, how I conduct my one-on-ones, how I like to communicate, how I Mm. like to work together. And again, that was this huge awakening. I was like, this is the person who's concerned about mutual fit, not just short-term, not just immediate, but long-term. So the person, because we, we all know that saying, like people don't leave jobs, they leave their managers, yes, right? Yes, so yes. he was really tuned into like, look, I have gotten feedback that I'm not the right fit as a manager for everyone. Those people who like me, they love me. Those people who don't, they leave, right? So let me give you all the people who used to 
report to me the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you decide. Yeah. Right. So mutual fit. So not only that to me, not only speaks to the mutual fit, but also it, it immediately gives that message of transparency, vulnerability, clarity, and self-awareness. And I think that is huge. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you also talk about a best practice in the book that I thought this is a good one to highlight, which is that a hiring manager should speak with the candidate twice. Can you tell me more mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. So I think with uh, with hiring and interviewing, it's really selling, right? Like the mm-hmm. candidate is selling themselves, the manager is selling themselves and the company and so forth. So on the first interview, everyone comes in with their best suit and their best resume and their best pitch and they're ready to go. So then I ask managers, okay, after the entire interview is done, let's put all the warts on the table. Let's tell all the good, the bad, and the ugly on the table. And I I kind of make an analogy. I was like, think about it this way. Like you wouldn't ask someone to marry you on your first date, right? Like you would kind of date, you would go on a few dates and so forth. And then you would decide, okay, let's let's have this long-term commitment, right? So we can take the similar approach in hiring where you're like, okay, so the first meeting was our first date. Like it, it makes sense. Let's continue dating. You go, go around and meet with a couple other stakeholders and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then let's have a follow-up conversation where we're like, okay, this is what I learned. This is what I heard. Like, let's just have a real conversation. And the way that we uh, conduct those conversations now at Bank Liumi is using a, pre, uh, a psychometrics tool. Um, so it, it's just a uh, kind of a conversational starter. So it just kind of shows like, here's how I communicate, here's my work style and so forth. And it's a transparent process because we say like, look, there's no right answer, but just try to find out a little bit more from each other mm-hmm. if there's how you will work together, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's used, sometimes it's not used. Sometimes the manager just goes out, you know, to a lunch and gives a reference check of of everyone who uh, used to report to him. But either way, have that follow-up conversation where there's no more selling involved. Like now we're saying like, look, like you are taking a huge risk of leaving your current company and coming here or, you know, leaving your other interviews that you're interviewing with other companies and considering to, to make your move here, you have to have a lot, a, a, a big decision to make. And I, as a manager, have a pretty big decision to make because every new hire impacts the team, the morale, the, the productivity and so forth, right? So mm-hmm. let's make sure we're making the right fit now versus 90 days later, we decide like, oh, I wish I knew that I wouldn't have moved forward. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think it's super important. And, you know, a lot of the work that I do with leaders is for them to get to know the employees, not necessarily through the, well, the hiring process, its own thing, but then to build that level of transparency and clarity on the implicit and explicit expectations, the preferences, the styles, and all of that, and put it on the table, have conversations about it, the two-way conversation about it, because it will make it so much easier and will create trust and a strong relationship so much faster, which will only benefit everyone. But then there's always the situation where, well, we were kind of dating and we all put our best foot forward and we may have withheld certain information consciously or unconsciously, or we were really excited about the opportunity and we had biases in the process Mm -hmm. of this is going to work out and I can see it. And then it turns out it actually isn't a good fit. So 
I always tell my clients, listen, this is going to be inevitable. At some point you will make a wrong hire and you will have to figure out what to do and how to handle that situation. What are your suggestions for people who are hiring managers and then they realize early on the first 90 days, there are some red flags? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to your point, I would 100% agree with you. Like it, you will make a hiring mistake and, and it's okay. It's okay to learn from it, right? Um, and one of the other most valuable advice I received was, you know, hire slow and fire fast. Mm-hmm. And I would even add, yes, fire fast, but caring. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, one of the things I learned from this book called Love Em or Lose Em by Beverly Kay and Sharon Jordan Evans is to conduct state interviews because way too often do we wait until exit interview to figure out what was actually going on, what was actually happening. So they, they say like, look, like conduct stay interviews. And the way I do it, I actually incorporate it into every single one-on-one that I have with every single employee that I have, whether it's a new hire or not. And the way I do it is uh, in the format of start, stop, continue, right? So what should yep. I start doing that I haven't been doing and so forth? And it's a, it's a two-way feedback, right? So I do the same thing to, to the employee and I ask them the same. And if you continue to talk about what, what this new hire needs to stop or start, and they're still not doing it, right? This provides an opportunity to provide candid feedback and with mm-hmm. examples and so forth, right? So then there there shouldn't be any surprise to the new hire, right? It it would be a big surprise if like for the first 90 days, everything seems fine. And all of a sudden on the 91st day, you're getting fired. Okay. Like that, (laughs) that's not okay. Right. Like that's not, that's a hard decision to make all around and it's going to be a hard day. But I remember one time um, walking by, and I actually talked about this in my book as well. I was walking by a human resources business partner firing someone, and that person was actually giving her a hug. And the reason why they did that was that it was not a surprise. The, The feedback was there the entire time, and it, and it was done in a caring way. Like, look, like, why would you want to come to work every day, you know, feeling like you need to stretch yourself and contort yourself into like a pretzel where it's just not working. Like we've talked about it in the last 90 days. We've talked about it every week. It's not working. Yes. So let's talk about how to make sure we find how I can help you find your, your next home. So doing in a caring way. Yeah. It bringing it back to the dating uh, analogy here. I think it's this idea you wouldn't want to date someone who doesn't want to date you, right? So, (laughs) and you'll never be successful. You'll never marry that person. So the person who wants to be dating and the other person kind of doesn't or doesn't see it, it's a waste of time, right? And I think, and I've personally been in this situation, which is a lesson for me, is where I saw someone not being a good fit and ultimately we parted ways. And I saw that person take on a different job and thrive, in that other organization, different culture, different work requirements, different set of skills that were needed to, to for that person to bring to the table. And they were doing an amazing job. For that person to stay on my team would have been a struggle and a waste of years or months in their career that they could have been somewhere else thriving. You know, not even talking about the, the impact of chronic stress or burnout or toxic relationships that can evolve uh, or can come out of situations like this. Um, so noticing, and I love how you said having these stay interviews actually recently did a podcast on entry interviews 
And so that just completes the picture of an entry interview, a stay interview, and then you do the exit interview. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but on that process, and, and again, um, I think we're on the same page here very much with the two-way conversation. You always want to make sure, especially in that buyer's market right now, where you want to make sure that you know and you are also not getting surprised and, and thrown off um, or getting surprised when someone just jumps ship because you didn't see the warning signs and didn't hear any feedback and hear about them not being satisfied or wanting something different. But you do have the opportunity along the way to course correct the main changes if that is possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So good. Um, thank you so much for sharing this. There's some one last thing that I'd love to talk to you about, which is on a topic of being proactive. I think, yeah, generally speaking, we're, a lot of us are very busy. We do a lot of different things. And then all of a sudden we realize like, okay, hiring, or I got a, a new full-time employee approved, or I got a headcount approved. And then we jump into the next step, which seems to be like, okay, we'll chop description and where do we find candidates? What I notice when I speak with more experienced leaders, they're sort of courting people all the time they're like always in sort of having their feelers out connecting looking for people that they want to have on their team down the road six months 12 months what's your view on this yeah so every single company that i've talked to and every manager who i've talked to they say how important it is to build a pipeline of candidates but i don't often see it done right Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that uh, is I have, to your point about courting, right? So there's one manager who I work with who I think does this exceptionally well, where he knows the game changers in the industry. So in other mm-hmm. words, we might not have the perfect role for that person, that, that role might not be open yet, but he knows like, look, if we're able to hire that individual, it will literally change the, the direction of our business in a positive way, right? So when he goes to conferences, he makes sure he sees like, okay, is this person on the list? Can I make time to go talk to them? If not, I'm going to reach out to them and say, I missed you. Let's, let's connect mm-hmm. over lunch or so forth. And he does this quarterly, every single quarter, he does that with game changers. Now I take it a little bit step further to say like, look, not every single, you, you may not need game changers, like all yeah. the time role uh, in your organization, you may need role players, you may need, you know, some someone who's taking, you know, a leap of faith for their next role and so forth, right? So you should have, uh, you know, an approach to target those individuals as well. So you may interview, you know, someone may apply to a role, and it's just like too junior, but you can see they have potential, like I need to make sure I have a connection with them. And this happens to me pretty frequently where, where I just speak to someone who's just a little too junior, right? Mm-hmm. So I start talking to them and, you know, I'll send them references like, oh my gosh, did you see what's going on in this industry? Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I just read this book. I recommend you read this book. I just saw this TED talk, whatever the case may be. And now we have this connection where they realize like I'm invested into their career growth. So when they're ready or mm-hmm. when the time is right for us, maybe we have an opportunity to, to take on more of a stretch assignment and we have the the bandwidth to offer that training to that stretch assignment and and the same thing goes with those head scratchers who are changing career potentially doing career changes or getting back into the workforce after taking some time off there's an opportunity to build a relationship with them for that right time right place what you're highlighting here for me too is to always be on the lookout to identify talent or even people with great personalities or great work ethic or great character. We think like, you know, I don't see the, the 
actual skill set match yet, but that kind of person is who I want to have on my team and to always be building that pipeline. Yeah. And I would add one more thing too, is that when you, uh, when you have that relationship with that person, they actually become the best brand ambassadors for you, right? So you reach out to them and say like, okay, like, look, like you're not quite right for this role, but do you know anyone, you know, and they're the ones who are going to recommend the best candidates because they are willing to share their network as well. You know, they're willing to, Mm -hmm. to where you're at, how much effort you're willing to put into them. They're willing to do the same too. So good. And I do think there's like a, a bit of a mindset shift of being the reactive hiring manager versus being proactive and always looking for, Hey, I'm here to build an A team. And I know that my success will come from the success of the team and the people that I hire. And so I see it as a big responsibility and will invest, proactively invest time in um, courting those people. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, uh, Tatiana. This was so good. I loved uh, talking to you and I highly recommend your book. It's literally, I I told you this earlier, I said, you know, been writing my own book right now. I have such an appreciation for books and the work that goes into it. And yours is full of actionable uh, suggestions and best practices as well as tools. So for anyone looking for some guidance, uh, go check out Tatiana's book called Hire to Win, Manager's Practical Guide for Attracting and Interviewing Top Talent. Thank you, Tatiana. Available on Amazon. <laughs> Available on Amazon. Thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that was it. This was my conversation with Tatiana Kier, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I think that hiring and developing hiring skills and getting great at interviewing and setting up the process is such an important skill to develop. And we all have to learn this at some point, right? We can either learn it the fast way by training and reading up on it and listening to podcasts and absorbing information such as this. Or we can learn through trial and error. I highly recommend checking out her book, which you can find linked to in the show notes. And that you invest in learning the skill of hiring, in interviewing, and getting people on board. This is not something we're born with. We all have to go through the process. And most of us, including myself, made a lot of mistakes early on in the way that I interviewed or the way that I even prepared for the hiring process. And I think especially in a time like this where the competition is so high and high-performing professionals have a lot of options, if we don't present ourselves, our team, and our company in a positive light by demonstrating that we have our processes nailed down, that we know what we're doing and being responsive in the hiring process, we're likely going to lose the talent because they have options and there may be other companies that present themselves better. So I hope you feel inspired and encouraged to dive further into this topic and develop your skills in hiring, in interviewing. It will for sure be an investment that will pay off over and over again. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week. If you love this show, then you love even more my free training for new managers. If you haven't watched this training yet, then I'll strongly encourage you to sign up at RamonaShaw.com forward slash masterclass. You'll discover the key shifts you'll need to make as a new manager and the number one most common mistake to avoid. Plus, you'll walk away with actionable tips that you can apply in your role right away. Go to RamonaShaw.com forward slash masterclass to sign up.